Hi, this is Daniel Jepson, and you're listening to the podcast, Your Word is a Lamp. This is a sermon that was recorded January 24th, 2021 at Franklin Community Church, and it's an exposition of Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the temptation of Christ, and what it means for us. I hope you find it a blessing. Most of us know, likely, (laughs) the story of Pearl Harbor and all the things that happened there. We know how on uh, December 7th, 1941, there was an attack on our naval base that left 2,400 sailors killed. They destroyed 21 ships and 75% of the airplanes we had in the Pacific Fleet. Now... How was all this accomplished when there was such little loss on the attacking force? They barely lost, uh, I think it was like 15 planes or whatever, something like that. How was that possible? Well, we know the answer, right? The answer was that there was not a preparation because we didn't know, or the United States did not know, that we were yet in a warfare stance. And we're going to come to, and I a focus on using the word of God in spiritual warfare this morning. And what I want us to start with is this idea that we are in a spiritual battle. And the only thing worse than being in a battle is being in a battle and not knowing you're in the battle. The only thing worse than being on a battleground is thinking you're on a playground, right? And not being prepared for it. And so I want to look at how Jesus is not only the one who saves us in his death, but saves us in his life because he is our example. He is the one who shows us how we should act within the spiritual battle in in a way that ensures our victory and not not the enemy's. So we are going to look primarily at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I'll invite you to turn there. By way of background, the last few weeks at the beginning of 2021, Uh, We've had several sermons around this theme, that we should dedicate ourselves to spending more time in the Word of God in 2021, and especially not simply reading that, but meditating upon that. So today, this is a sub-focus of that theme, but there's one main idea that I want to get across. So if you don't take anything else home today, take this across. You are in a spiritual battle, and this Word is your weapon. You are in a spiritual battle, and this Word is your weapon. If we don't get anything else, let's get that. Now, let's flesh this out a little bit with this story in John chapter 4. And we're going to do this first by getting the background in John chapter 3. So we want to put this in its context in the book of of Matthew, but also in its theological context, because there there is a very strong link between this passage and what happens in chapter 4. So what happens in the last part of chapter 3? You have the baptism of Jesus. And Jesus came forth to, to, be, to be baptized, and, and John tries to demur a little bit. No, I, I can't baptize you. you. You are the Holy One. And Jesus says, let it be to fulfill all righteousness. And I think what he meant by that was he came to display the righteousness of the righteous life of following God. And that included, for us, baptism. So as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, And alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I loved. With him I am well pleased. 
So as Jesus is baptized at the very beginning of his ministry, right now you have the heavenly voice saying this, this person is my son. So you have the affirmation of God that in a very special way, this is the one I've sent into the world. Pay attention to him. Listen to him, to what he says. Now that idea, this is my son, is going to carry us into this next part about the temptation of Jesus. Because each temptation is going to begin by the evil one saying, if you are the son of God. All right. So before we look at those individual ones, let's get the, uh, a little bit more background of this, and then we're going to go into the meaning. Matthew chapter 4 tells us this. Then, right after the baptism, this is the next verse, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, Luke has a parallel account. It's even in chapter 4, nice enough. But notice how he starts it. Then Jesus, followed the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the evil one. Now, if we're going to look at this on a very surface level, wait, is this a contradiction? Was it Satan who led him into the wilderness, or was it the Holy Spirit? And the answer is, of course, that many things have more than one cause. They can have a proximate cause, but then a greater cause overruling that, right? So, and, and that's what's happening here. God will use the plans of the evil one. And that, that's a wonderful thought. Satan always pulls God's cart, okay? So this is something that Satan will use, but it's also something God will use and intends to use in a different way. And that will be true of the problems and conflicts and trials in our lives as well. There's nothing that will bring, that will come about that God does not allow. Now we can develop that more, but I want to instead focus on this word that might help us to see why. There's a Greek word here uh, when it says he was led to be tempted. Uh, that word is parasmos. And the uh, funny thing is that word can be translated tempted or tested. And it has a different meaning in each case. When it means tempted, it means to solicit, to solicit towards evil. And Satan's goal there is corruption. But when it means test, either, either means to show or refine. And here the goal is perfection. Now, let's stop back here a second. We don't usually think of testing in this way, but maybe we can think of some analogies. You know, every uh, car maker in the world has a test track, right? So they put the cars out there, and they, they why, why do they do that? Well, they want to see what can be corrected at high speeds, but they also want to show what these cars can do. And that's what testing involves. Testing is not a destructive process, it's a constructive process that will use even Satan's tempting. In uh, 1799, a man named Conrad Reed, a young man, he found a 17-pound rock while he was fishing in the Little Meadow Creek in the Carolinas. Uh, there must have been something about this rock that caught his attention because he took it home, and for three years, their family used it as a doorstop. Finally, in 1802, three years later, his father, John, took it to have this rock appraised, and he found out that the rock was mostly gold. And in 1802 dollars, it was worth $3,600. I have no idea what that is today. Uh, I'm going to guess it's a little bit north of that, though, right? 17 pounds, mostly pure gold. In fact, this was one of the largest deposits or, or pieces of gold ever found east of the 
of the Mississippi River in our country. For three years, he used it as a doorstep. Why? Because it hadn't been tested. It hadn't been shown to be what it was. And that's the idea. But the, the thing of it is that God will often allow the testing to come through the inner suffering or the inner dissonance that we are going to face in either trials of pain and suffering and discomfort or temptation. Temptation will lead to a testing because there is a response to us that will show whose we are. Are we really God's or are we following our own self? So with that background here, we come to the first temptation. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I am told, I've never gone on a 40-day fast. Uh, if, if you have, I don't want to know about because I'll feel bad. Uh, that I don't measure up. But I'm told that after a fast of, say, eight or nine days, maybe 12 days, when you're involved in that, your body actually stops sending hunger signals. Your, your digestive system just kind of shuts down. You don't feel the hunger. But then you get the hunger pains back, and that's a signal that your body is starting to starve itself, that you're in mortal danger. So when it says Jesus was hungry after 40 days, it's not just this, okay, hunger we might feel right now if we skip breakfast. These are death pangs. And it's at this state, the evil one comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, make these stones into bread. Make these stones into bread. Now, Underneath this, I think, was this very real temptation, which we're all going to face. You have a need, a legitimate need. God's not coming through to meet that need. It looks like he's abandoning you. But if you are the son of God, take what power you have, your own power, apart from God's will, make bread. Now, why would Jesus refuse this? I mean, common sense would tell him to do just that. Because Jesus was understanding something about his place. He understood that he had been brought out to be tested in the wilderness. And part of this testing was going to be parallel to the testing of the children of Israel. And so he harkens back and he quotes Deuteronomy 8, where God tells the people, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, you see the parallel with 40 days. Why? To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. And again, I don't think this is a cognitive issue for God, like he doesn't know. But the idea is to show them, to make this real, to force a decision. He humbled you, causing you to hunger. God caused you to hunger. And then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that a man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I humbled you, I tested you. Why? Because I wanted to teach you something. I wanted to teach you that your life is a gift from me, and I am a good God, and I will bring forth at the proper time what you need. And sometimes, though, that testing is going to be, it doesn't seem like I'm coming through. But I will. Sometimes that testing means we wait. We wait on God to provide because we know that in this particular situation, I am not to use my own strength and common sense and wisdom and power. I am to wait on God. And that's what Jesus knew. 
So he quotes this in response um, and Satan goes on to the next one. All right, so I, I assume this next temptation is probably in a vision form in, in some way. He took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, had him stand at the highest point of the temple. So the temple complex at one point overlooks the valley. So that's a couple hundred feet in the air, right? It's also one of the most prominent places, maybe the most prominent place in all of Israel. In other words, if you really wanted to be seen, it was at the temple compound. And he says, hey, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Well, two things are going to happen then. Number one, people are going to see it, what's about to happen. Two, they're going to see that the angels have come and caught you. And then he quotes Psalm 91. And he quotes Psalm 91 and he says, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands. You will not strike your foot against the stone. Interesting, this is a messianic psalm. Satan knew what he was doing here. So it brings forth the word. And Jesus replies, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Where is that written? Well, Deuteronomy 6, two chapters before we looked before. Um, do not put your Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now, now what's going on here? Jesus, if he had followed the suggestion of the evil one to gain a claim, would also be testing God to prove that he was going to take care of him. In other words, he would only throw himself down to show and to prove, okay, this is what God will do. He will take care of me. It was to force God's hand. In that way, it was to test God. It was to test God instead of letting himself, Jesus, endure the test from God. So it was a sin of basically presumption and, and uh, not waiting for God's way, but pushing God's way. All right. Third, again, I, I assume this is in a vision format. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, wait a second. How does Satan have the power to give this to Jesus? Well, if you read Luke's gospel, he, it's even more explicit. Uh, he, he says at this point, all of them were given to me and I can give them to anyone I, I want. What's happening here? Well, the same thing's happening is when Jesus and John repeatedly calls uh, Satan the prince of this world. As we're going to look at in a minute, when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just this little tiny sin. It was actually switching of humanity's allegiance to the evil one. Now, we're not going to understand all the ways that it looked, but some way, in some, in some manner, that gave Satan authority. And it's the authority over mankind in some way. Now, it's limited. Again, it's according to God's uh, veto power and his purpose. But do you, get the, do, you, do you get the force of this? Why did Jesus come? Well, at least partly, it was to be the savior of the world, to establish his new kingdom, to establish this kingdom which would reign forever, bring a blessing to all people. And here he could have it, get this, this is the point, without the cross. I don't know if Satan knew about the cross at this point. I'm assuming not, but Jesus sure did. This must have had a lot of pull to him because he knew what it would cost 
to do it God's way. But in the end, he simply says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only, which is a Greek paraphrase of this Hebrew verse right here. He quotes the same passage yet again. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. All right, so this is the story. What does it mean to us? All right, what, what, what's going on here? What's the, the bigger picture? All right, well, if we're reading this, we may see that there are parallels to the Old Testament, and in particular, two instances. We probably caught this one already about Israel, because Jesus makes the point each time of quoting from the place where Israel is about to go into the land, to Deuteronomy. There's also a more hidden reference and background, and that is to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were called, in a special way, God's son, God's relationship there. Israel was called God's son, and now Jesus is revealed as the true son of God. And if you read the New Testament, you see that Jesus comes as the true Israel. So all the prophecies about Israel are ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus. All that Israel should have been is going to be found in Jesus. But Israel itself is a continuation of the story of Adam and Eve. God bringing forth his people into the world to be his partners in ruling rightly over this creation. So it's not, we shouldn't be surprised then that these are all connected in this way. How does this work out? Well, let's go to Adam and Eve. The first temptation is to trust God's provision. And so Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the evil one comes in the form of a, of a serpent and says, did God really say you can't eat from every tree? And when they said, yeah, God said we couldn't even touch it, Satan says, you will not die. But God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, what's going on here? Well, first of all, this was a test of whether they would trust God's provision. It's a test compared to Jesus. It's almost a contrast, right? Adam and Eve have everything, almost. Jesus has nothing except the knowledge that God is his father in a very special way. Adam and Eve have a garden full of all the things they could eat with one prohibition. But it says Eve looked at that. And she said, it was as good for, for knowledge and desirable for gaining wisdom, and she ate of it. In other words, she placed her good versus God's repeated good when he said in chapter 1, this, what I have brought forth, my, my, my world and my ways and my, my plan, this is what's good. And Eve looked at that and says, no, I will decide myself what's good for me. And Adam did exactly the same thing. So the temptation was to trust God's provision, but along with that, there was going to be a trust of God's word. Because God had told them, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. By the way, did they? Or was Satan right when he said, you won't surely die? Well, if I go out in the springtime, and I go out to one of the apple trees out here, got the blossoms that are growing these apples, and I take a hacksaw, or not a hacksaw, a, a pruning shear or some type of, of, of saw, and I cut that branch off, did it die that day? 
It has a form of life that continues and appears for a while. But we know that because it is separated from its source of life, it really did die that day. It's just a matter of that death working itself out. Trust God's word. You won't surely die. And so part of what's happening here is this is a force of trusting God's word and what he said. And of course, we'll look at it in a second. They could not choose to disobey God's word without obeying the word of the evil one. Third, trust God's plan for you. You won't be, you won't die. Instead, you will be like God. In other words, instead of digging around this, this garden, you will be like these angelic, exalted beings. God's holding out on you. It's only by doing things your own way. It's only by grasping and reaching ahead, apart from what God has said, that is the only way that your life will be what it should be. And that is the exact same kind of temptation he brings to each one of us, right? It's what he brought to Jesus. Look, here I are starving in the desert. Make the stones bread. Show people who you are. Inherit the world on my terms. And what seems like common sense. So these temptations are not random. They are in line. They are different form a little bit. But it's the same spirit as what they, Adam and Eve, would, would uh, have faced. I love what Edmund Clowney he is a former professor and college uh, president. And he wrote a wonderful book called The Unfolding Mystery. And uh, he has some wonderful quotes about this that I think might illuminate some of what we're talking about. He says, as Satan would have it, God was not to be worshipped but envied, not served but thwarted. Man could not be his own God, build his own dominion, possess the world, not at not as God's steward, but as an absolute monarch. The tempter, of course, would create the assumption that he was the friend and the advocate of man, that he intervened to deliver man from the exploitation by God and open for him the destiny he desires. The implications of the temptation are evident. However, if Adam and Eve had not first been blinded by their own desires, they would have questioned the authority of the serpent. Who is this creature who called God a liar? What new relationship would come would be the outcome of, of heeding the serpent rather than the creator. The serpent offered to make them rivals of God. What were his own desires? Reject the word of God without becoming captive to the word of the devil? Was that possible? Satan did not openly ask for the homage of Adam, but that was plainly the outcome of the success. By obeying the serpent, Adam and Eve made themselves the friends of Satan and the enemies of God. Now, I think I lost when I pasted and cut there. But here's the main idea. I lost a sense or two. They could not disobey the word of God without obeying the word of the evil one. And that's the same temptation that Jesus is going to face. But notice the contrast here. Jesus refused Satan's offered and proceeded to demonstrate an authority that Satan had not offered, the authority to command Satan to, to depart. The analogy to the sin of Adam is present by total contrast. Adam desired a greater authority than he had been given, and he inherited shame and doom. He would be God's rival and thereby set himself against God, siding with the enemy. Jesus desired to serve his father and inherited a dominion beyond the dreams of Adam or Satan. I love this phrase. A dominion that does not rival God's kingdom 
but that is at one with his kingdom. What a great phrase. All right, let's begin to wrap this up here now. What does this mean to us? Well, first of all, we kind of hammered this home. Remember that you are in a battle. You are in a spiritual battle. These temptations, Adam and Eve faced them, Israel faced them, Jesus faced them, and those with who are in Jesus, hopefully that is us, also will face them. We will face the same dynamic. The question is not that. The question is whether we know it and are prepared. Are we prepared? Vince Lombardi is a, one of the great coaches of the NFL, won the first two Super Bowls with the Green Bay Packers. And he was a great leader. And he said this phrase, it stuck with me. He says, the will to win is not nearly as important as the will to prepare to win. The will to win is not nearly as important as the will to prepare to win. He knew that the game was not won during that 60 minutes on Sunday. It was won in the practices Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Are we ready for that battle? We read this already, Ephesians 6.2. You are in a struggle. 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and have a sober mind. Be prepared. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. All right, second, the, the realm of this battle is ideas and thoughts. I, I don't know where this comes from, but there have been a lot of movies and even video games about demonic activity and, and facing demons. And maybe you've seen some of these. There are a lot. And... Uh, and in these video games, in these movies, it, it's always the case that these, these demons, these enemy spirits, are defeated by physical force. At least, maybe I'm wrong. I haven't seen them all, obviously. I don't, don't plan on making that part of my regular diet. But that, from what I've seen, you know, they, they have swords or... or they, all right. The problem is this totally misrepresents what this battle that you and I are facing are about. Satan has no real desire to hurt you physically. Unless there's some greater plan that he attaches to that. But he knows if he, if he kills a Christian, they just go to be with Christ sooner. That's not his desire. His desire is to corrupt your soul, not to hurt your body. I believe Satan can work in the physical realm, but he apparently does. that's not what he wants to do, at least in our country. It's in the realms of ideas. It's in the realms of thoughts. Paul says this. We live in the world, but we do not wage war as the world does. Wait, Paul, you're waging war? Yeah. He says, every time I wake up, especially when I go and, and preach the gospel, we're waging war. <laughs> the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power not human power, to demolish strongholds. Strongholds, you know, in a military sense, it's usually a fort that controls a certain vital area. And if you control that fort, you, you control all the area around there, right? That's the idea of a stronghold. Paul says we have that. But the power we have is not a physical stronghold. We have the power to demolish these spiritual, intellectual strongholds that are holding us back and influencing us. We demolish, how do we do this? We demolish arguments. We demolish arguments 
and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to God. This is how he wages this war, the same way Jesus did. Did you know, did you see how Jesus did this? Well, actually, that goes to the next point. Let's talk about it here. The weapons of our war are going to be words. Did you see how Jesus fought this battle? If there was anyone in the history of mankind who could have responded to the temptations of the evil one with his own wisdom, want to be Jesus? And he did. Every time against the words of the evil one, he put the words of God. Every time against the thoughts of the evil one, he put the thoughts of God. He had spent time taking in this word. He has spent time meditating upon this. He, he must have memorized a great deal of this. Why? Well, he, he doesn't have a scroll of Deuteronomy or the Torah out there in the desert with him, right? At some point previous to this, he had taken in and internalized those words, and he understood because he had done that, that his place was now fulfilling what Israel and Adam should have been. And so he was able to respond with the relevant passages from Deuteronomy about that same issues. He put words against words. He put words against words. And then finally, and again, we're already kind of leading into this. Our success in this battle will come from applying the word to our areas of testing and tempting. If Jesus is going to use the word, the objective word given to us here, to fight the battle, then he is our example of showing us what we have to do. But we're not going to do this if we don't know the book. We're not going to do this if we have a surface knowledge and we're not understanding how these, the principles of this word are going to apply in our situation. We're not going to do this if we haven't thought deeply about our own life. What are the issues that are bringing me down? What keeps me from living in the joy and the fullness that God wants for me as a person? Thinking through that, what, what lies am I believing? How have I been hurt that's brought those lies of power? What do I do with these things? What keeps me from being an effective witness and service for God? It has to be something. Thinking through and then saying, all right, what does God say about that? What does this word say about that? Meditate upon this word, let it work itself into response, and then choosing to give that word, speak that word, preach that word to ourselves again and again and again. That is how we win the battle. We prepare ourselves with the word. We prepare ourselves, as, as Lombardi said, to, we had the will to prepare to win, not just the will to win. I don't know where that finds you and me, what does that mean for us? Well, if we've been sloppy in our church attendance, our life group, obviously this is a time where we hear the word together. And our Bible study, our, our Bible study is a great time to receive that word, to meditate and think through it. Our own devotional time. Again, not just reading the scriptures, but taking time to meditate upon a part of that. Asking God to show us how this applies to our life. This is the way forward. This is how we prepare. Well, I started the story, or the sermon, with the story of Pearl Harbor. There is a, a coda to that story. There's a bookend, as it were. 
And the bookend comes in June 4th, June 4th of 1942. So about six months later. I find my notes so I get the right ones here. It was the Battle of Midway. And here's what was going to happen. The Japanese, recognizing that they had not destroyed the entire American fleet, in particular their aircraft carriers, which were not at Pearl that day, decided to set a trap. And their trap would involve the American island of Midway. It's called Midway because it was midway between uh, North America and, and Japan or the, or the Asian coast. So it had a very strategic location. It had an airfield there. And uh, it was something the Americans would probably want to defend. So the trap was this. We are going to send a force there, an amphibious force, with, with some planes, knock out the airfield, and, and then send our, our soldiers ashore, take it over. And then when the Americans hear about this, they're going to send in their carrier force. But we're going to have our carrier force hidden and plan a sneak attack on their carriers. It might have worked, except for one thing. That during the intervening six months, American codebreakers working around the clock almost in Pearl Harbor in a basement in one of their administrative buildings had broken the Japanese code. And they knew what was going to happen. They knew exactly the time and the place and the force that the Japanese were going to bear. The Japanese brought four of their six major carriers. So they had six heavy carriers. Two were um, were in port. They, they sent their four that were operational. They sent the, the pride of their, of their fighter uh, corps with that, and they sent them to destroy the American carriers. There were three American carriers left in the Pacific theater. But on that day, there was a little bit of luck involved, yes, but mostly it was preparation and foreknowledge that the battle was here. On that day, the Americans did lose one carrier, but each one of the Japanese carrier, the Akaga, the Kagi, the Hiru, and the Suryu, each went to the bottom of the Pacific that day. And along with them, the cream of the, of the Japanese Air Corps, the fighter pilots. And from then on, the entire flow of the battle in the Pacific changed because the, the Japanese Navy could no longer be on the offense. They had to play defense. And from then on, it was only a question really of time before the matter was settled. What was the difference? Same, same adversary. The difference was that they understood they were in a battle and they had prepared. This has been Your Word is a Lamp. Thank you for listening.